Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm Mark Stansberry, your host. And before we get started introducing our guest today, I'd like to thank the sponsors of our show. We'd like to thank OGGN family and all those working at OGGN, One Gas Global Network. Go to the survey that's on the show notes and fill that out. It only takes about 10 seconds or less. You can win some stickers for your hard hats and for your laptops. So please go to that. I would love to get those out of here and on your hard hats and whatever you're going to put them on. As far as rating and review, also under the show notes, we'd love to hear from you. Please rate, review, give us some ideas of what you'd like to hear from us, who you'd like to have on the program, and things like that. We'd love to hear from you on that. Update on the book, the monograph that is, America Needs America's Energy and Its Natural Resources. Please go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble for those, a monograph. And also the original book can be found at Barnes & Noble and Amazon, as well as other outlets. I want to thank those that have supported us along the way with our documentary, Sherwood Forest, Top Secret. Really thank you for tuning into that. It's on pbs.org and other outlets as well. We did receive a Heartland Emmy nomination. We're really proud of that and proud mainly because it touched the hearts of so many throughout our country and have heard from those that hopefully impacts the oil and gas industry in a positive way from not only World War II, but to the future of energy here in the United States. And for the column, Oil Man Magazine, it's our 10th year, my 10th year, to be a writer for that, a contributing editor. And so I hope you'll look at the next article that comes out in Oil Man Magazine. Well, this is truly an honor. It's hard to keep up with this gentleman. He's really active in the financial world, active in so many interests that he has. Stacy Huddleston. Stacy, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back and, you know, looking forward to another successful podcast with you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's definitely successful when you're on it because it has so much knowledge and very knowledgeable to share that. Thank you for taking this time. I know you're a very busy individual and I appreciate this and appreciate your years of friendship as well. Let's get started really about where you are today. I mean, I've seen you in different capacities in both the financial world as well as civic and so forth. And I could read a bio. I've gotten where I try to you know, avoid that from the standpoint is people really want to hear from you. Tell from your heart, tell from your mind of what you've got on your mind and heart is in regard to what you've got going as far as business and elaborate on that, if you will. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And again, I'm very flattered and appreciate your kind words. I promise you, I'm not as knowledgeable as you think I am. Well, I, I would argue with that, but I just still. gather a lot of information, and and really, I try to, you know, put this information out so that business owners and folks like us can really, you know, put that work or that knowledge to work for our businesses, and you know, help each other out. And so, you know, it's definitely an honor to be back, and looking forward to it. You know, so earlier this year, I made a move and joined a asset-based lending office called Austin Financial Services. They're based out of Los Angeles, California, and have a national footprint of providing asset-based credit lines to companies across nearly all sectors of business and industries 
throughout the United States, primarily focusing on those companies that need a credit line, we'll call it a million dollars, all the way up to 20 million. And so, you know, very much like other credit lines that you might find at banks, but this is a non-bank lender that I work for, Austin Financial Services. And at the end of the day, we provide, you know, credit lines to support the growth of those companies. And recently, really focusing on those companies that, quite frankly, are working with banks, have worked with banks for years in the past. And as you know, there's been quite a bit of credit tightening, if you will, in the past year with banks in general. And so we're finding that there are several companies, several industries that are impacted by this credit tightening across the United States and the banking systems. And what that means is that good companies, great companies are finding that they're being told no by their bank. It's as simple as that. So they may ask for a larger line of credit and the bank may say no. They may look for other credit terms and the bank may say no. Or they may renew the line of credit, but it may come with other restrictions. So there are just a lot of variables that are at play right now when it comes to the U.S. economy and the lending situation that we have that's unfolding I mean, as we speak right now, and it will continue to unfold with what I consider my favorite word to use this year is the word called uncertainty. That's effectively what is happening, certainly in the last six months, but has evolved in the last 12. Well, and you know, when you take the energy sector alone, it takes years to develop sometimes infrastructure, whether it's pipelines or refineries or gas plants or whatever it might be. And to develop the workforce, as well as making sure that there's definitely plans in place. With that, we need funds. And with the funds on the sidelines, a lot of times, especially with what we're challenged by is in the oil and gas industry and energy industry, our requirements when it comes to regulations or ESG or whatever it might be to meet the requirements. And in the meantime, these plans take all this effort for years. How does a company like yours step in and go, wow, we want to help? Because there, I mean, you've kind of already introduced that to a certain degree, but to the challenges in in uncertain times that we have. Can you go further with that, please? Yeah. And that is the strange pull right now with capital and that there has always been, I would say for the last 15 years, a very large amount of capital that whether it be within the banks outside of banks, whether it be with private equity money, venture capital money, there has been a lot of money, including government money, sitting on the sidelines that's been deployed for the last 15 years. And with the markets that have corrected in the last year, we, you know, last couple of years, we have seen a lot of that money that's on the sidelines that's really supported that early stage company development kind of shrink. And a lot of those companies have gone to a little bit more expensive money or have sold to another. You see a lot of companies that are being sold from one private equity company to another private equity company. And so I always say that if you're looking to finance your dream, meaning that if you're looking to finance the early stage of a company or you're looking to, you know, deploy capital 
to hire more people because maybe you have more orders or you're developing a new division, whatever that is, the dream is usually what is financed with that money that's on the sidelines with either private equity, venture capital, friends and family, or even your own personal funds. Once the company gets to a point where it's actually generating revenue and you have account receivables and you have historical cash flow numbers, even if it's only a few months of cash flow, you have proof that you have purchase orders, you know, you've brought in inventory. All of these things kind of show that the business is actually evolving beyond just the dream. And that is when a lender, whether it be bank owned or non-bank owned lenders kind of step in and they're able to deploy that capital in a way that, you know, makes sense for the company. So how is your business separate from, say, a bank in the sense of regulations and things like that then in more detail? Yeah. So what's really interesting, again, I've been in lending for 22 years and through various lenders and banks and non-banks and also different types of loans, if you will, and different capital structures. And so I have a very wide range of how to kind of approach a business and how to deploy that capital in a way that makes sense and work with the business owner and the CFO to ensure that that capital is structured in a way that supports that business growth, right? So when you look at a bank, the way that the banks are really regulated now is primarily cash flow lending, meaning that a company typically has to have two years of positive cash flow. They have to have you know, positive net income, and then their EBITDA has to be able to cover usually 1.2 to 1.25 times the total annual debt payments that that company might have. Mm-hmm. And so it's very tough for most companies, especially those in high growth mode, to be able to not only deploy their capital and put it in a place that continues to grow and transform that business and hire more people, but it's also very difficult for that company to retain that net income back and show that positive net income and the positive EBITDA to cover those. So most of the companies, especially those where maybe the accountant is their number one business advisor who's advising them to write everything off. And if that's the case, it completely contradicts what a traditional bank line of credit requires, which is positive cash flow and positive net income. When you compare that to a non-bank lender, they're not regulated in a way that a bank is that requires cash flow lending. So I'll collect the same information that a bank will collect to determine whether or not we want to lend a company money. The difference maker is that we look at the collateral, the quality of the collateral, and see if there is enough there to enough collateral in advance where it makes sense for the company to move forward. You know, our goal is to deploy that capital, pay off existing loans or existing lines of credit if need be, or at least fulfill whatever that capital need or that capital stack is of that company. So we look to see if there's enough value there for the collateral to cover. And if it is, then we look at the cash flow because we're not mandated or regulated like banks are. Non-bank lenders can kind of step out and say, okay, well, there's a story here and we like the story. We like the owner. We like the CFO. We like what they're doing. 
And here is their plan to actually get to positive net income and positive cash flow. And we're going to work with them to make that happen. In many cases, we're able to deploy a line of credit that actually resembles something very similar to what a bank line of credit would look like. It's an advance rate on the account receivables and it's an advance rate on the inventory. As far as getting in touch with you, contacting you, what's the best way for those that are listening? You know, the best way, quite frankly, is to give me a call. My phone number is 816-372-5223. You can also email me at shuddleston. That's my first initial, last name, H-U-D-D-L-E-S-T-O-N at austinfinancial.com. Can you give those, again, both of those, the phone number as well as the email one more time for those who are just now reaching out for the pen and paper. So we'll make sure they Certainly. get that. Certainly. Yeah. My email is first initial, last name. It's S Huddleston, H-U-D-D-L-E-S-T-O-N at austinfinancial.com. And my phone number is 816-372-5223. Yeah, the 816 is a Kansas City number. That's where I live. That's where I work. I used to live in Oklahoma for several years and love the Oklahomans and everything that the great state of Oklahoma does for their people. And I've made the move to Kansas City to really centralize myself so that I can cover the national footprint and be a lender across several industries throughout the U.S., including the oil and gas service companies. Well, we miss you in Oklahoma, but we are glad that you're so successful in Kansas City and talked about a national footprint. Where are we heading? We've got a Federal Reserve along the way that continues to make some moves. Where do you see us in the next six months of the year? Because you'll say, you know, when you're in the planning business, which I am and many of us listening are, it's not just a year down the road, sometimes two or three years down the road that we have to think about. So what do we do? And again, in as you mentioned, uncertain times, uncertainty. Right. Yeah, the uncertainty is absolutely the sticking point right now because it has a lot of companies frozen where their decision-making process is really slowed down because they're trying to understand what is ahead of them in the next six months to 36 months. What I can tell you with certainty is the Fed is going to raise the rates again. I know at least one more time here in July and most likely another quarter percent before the end of the year. So we can expect another half a percent increase on the current federal funds rate. The current federal funds rate is somewhere between 5 and 5.4% right now. And it's important to understand that, you know, the federal funds rate is different from the prime interest rate. Prime interest rate is what the banks actually use to determine kind of the anchor plus a margin when they lend money. And that's most lenders. Their larger banks go with a different way. But the federal funds rate is actually the rate at which banks borrow the money from each other and from the Federal Reserve. And so as the cost goes up for banks, some banks are putting some of that money into treasury and how they do that and deploy that capital and lock it up for a certain period of time may or may not put them in a tight spot. So as the Federal Reserve or as the Fed continues to raise rates, I think we're going to see more shakeout from the banking industry. 
and what you're really going to see from that is nothing like, I don't think we're going to see what we saw back in 2008 with the banking industry. What I think we're going to see are more banks just pulling back. So they're going to be extremely selective with not only who they lend money to, but they're also going to be selective with how much money they lend to someone. And they're going to charge a much larger interest rate. So right now the interest rates, you know, business owners a year and a half ago, no kidding, if they had a prime plus zero interest rate, they were enjoying life at three and a quarter percent. Today, that exact same loan, you know, is eight and a quarter and soon to be eight and a half percent without doing anything different. So you want to talk about a pinch on the net income just from the interest expense alone. We're going to see that. The other thing we're going to see and need to keep an eye on August 1st is if UPS decides to strike. If all of your listeners were in an auditorium right now, I'd have them raise their hand if they get regular deliveries from UPS. Right. Most of them will say yes, at some form, fashion, or another. You know, it might be just a small part that they need, but it's required for their operations. And now, if that strike occurs, it's going to force that industry, or it's going to force all industries to really go to much more expensive alternatives when it comes to receiving packages. This couldn't come at a worse time because if that strike occurs, this pretty much puts a halt on all goods that are going to be delivered through the holiday season. This is the time that most of these large companies, large retailers are receiving or will soon receive goods for the holiday and begin stocking and that comes to a stop. So we're going to see that occur. But, you know, the Fed, I think, will continue to raise rates through this year, another half a point. It's going to put pressure on the lenders to pull back. And, you know, what that's going to force business owners to do is go out into the alternative lending market. And I really, really can't emphasize enough how important it is for them to really look at their options and try to understand what is out there and really read the fine print to know exactly what that cost of capital will be. We are seeing a mass amount of what I would consider commercial payday lending options, which are, you know, apply for a loan today, get your money in 24 hours. The fine print in many cases, those interest rates range anywhere from 25, 30% all the way up to triple digits. My goodness. So it's really important. And as much as most of them say that they don't file a UCC lien, I haven't seen one yet that doesn't file. Most of them will file. There is, from what I understand, some SBA changes that are coming August 1st that, you know, on one hand, they say it's loosening up a little bit of the restrictions. On another hand, it's still up to the banks to determine if they're going to lend that money out. And I just don't see that loosening happening, even when there's an SBA guarantee involved. Which sectors or subsectors within the energy industry are really being looked at closely? You know, traditionally oil and gas, but are there reasons to avoid oil and gas, or in your opinion, still oil and gas is a player along with the other subsectors? But which ones are standing out at this point from your perspective? 
No, that's a great question. And, you know, probably because I've got Oklahoma in my heart for many reasons. Definitely. (laughs) I love oil and gas. I love oil and gas service companies. You know, it will always be very difficult for any company to go out and get traditional capital from a bank or another lender on, you know, oil and gas EMP. That's where I kind of say, hey, if that's the case, it's probably going to be more from investors or, you know, other types of capital that are out there. I like to dig a little deeper into oil and gas and say, okay, if we could take that oil and gas industry and just kind of break it up into several different segments, you've got suppliers and distributors. I love this group, right? Because we know that they're selling to very recognizable logos. And those are usually going to be companies that we would just automatically approve because of the credit quality of their customers and their customers' ability to pay. You look at staffing companies. There's a lot of staffing companies out there that really staff into the oil and gas industry. Again, we love that industry. We love so these sub-industries that kind of feed into the oil and gas industry. Trucking is another one. Mm-hmm. You know, We know how difficult it is for the energy sectors trucking industry as a subsector to really get started and get up and going on their own. Usually you find that they kind of have a lot of wind behind their sails at about five power units. But once they hit about 20, it also becomes difficult again because it was easy to hire their five friends that they know that would be great truck drivers for them. But once they hit about 20, it becomes difficult to staff and find the right people to continue on. I like financing those that have about 20 or more power units. Can we dip down into where they have 10? Maybe, but they have to have the processes really figured out. This is the part where I like to dig in. I dig in very more. I would say I dig way deeper into the processes of how a company generates capital or cash versus most other lenders. So, you know, I not only ask for, you know, financials like everybody else, but I also ask for a detailed AR aging report, a detailed inventory report. And on any aging, I work with the owner and the CFO to really determine and understand their business from the perspective of when they receive an order to how long it takes for them to fulfill it. What does the supply chain look like and fulfilling those orders? And once it's delivered, how long does it take for them to get paid? Who's paying on time? Who's not? And then try to set up a line of credit that really bridges that gap in between the time that their account payables are due versus when they collect on their account receivables. And that's really, for me, the lifeline of a business is solving for cash flow And to do that, it's really setting up a line of credit that bridges the AP to the AR and the collection in between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. As far as startups, are you seeing many startups from the standpoint of energy? And if so, or if not, either way, how does someone enter from an entrepreneurial standpoint in this uncertain time? Because there are opportunities, you know, the workforce in the energy industry, especially oil and gas, 55 years and above, a lot are going through retirement, leaving a workforce that is not as, it's fragile, I guess you'd say, in a sense, because we don't see the workforce like we did just even a few years ago. 
because of retirement and moving on and getting into other industries. But I think there's some opportunities there. What do you say to someone that really wants to start a business? I know you mentioned cash flow is a big deal, and it is, but they don't have cash flow yet. They're just getting ready to start cash flow. Of course, it depends on their financials independently, I guess. But you still want to look at the full picture. So what advice? And those that are listening, there's probably a lot out there going, I've been working all these years. I like to do something on my own, not just young, but some of their older. I'd like to say, let's say the force. What do you have suggested for them to contact you, I guess, and to see if there's any potential? Or, or are you looking at startups at all? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Mark. Oh, it's a whole new episode. I'm leading to the next episode, by the way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I agree with you on the workforce. It's not only just fragile. I look at it more as it's tired, right? And we have yes, a new cohort. Yes. We have a new cohort of workers that are coming through that unfortunately have not been mentored enough from those that are exiting. I was talking to a couple of commercial lenders at a local bank here in Kansas City over lunch last week about this exact thing. And I have one banker that was sitting across from me who's 65, and I had another banker sitting next to me who was 29. And the 29-year-old had a portfolio size of $50 million dollars. But he's never run a business. He doesn't know much about any of the businesses that he's been given as a portfolio. You know, he just collects the financials and runs the numbers to see what works. And, you know, I paused for a second. I said, you know, I hope we have more lunches like this. I want the more mature lenders to work with the younger lenders. And I see this across every industry. So for those who are young in the industry, I implore you, please work for 10 years at least. Understand the industry. You might want to jump and you might want to start your own thing, but most of us don't know what we don't know. We think we know, but there's a lot of potholes out there that can be avoided by simply working for someone or working within the industry for seven to 10 years and really cutting your teeth to truly understand what works and what doesn't work. And then from there, jump. But in that seven to 10 years, I highly suggest you network your tail off. Network with as many people in your industry as you can. You should be working 12 to 15 hours a day, you know, eight hours with your employer and then go out and network after hours with other people that are in your industry and surround yourself with as many millionaires as you can. It sounds funny. It sounds goofy. I'm telling you, if you are looking to eventually start your own company, Surround yourself with millionaires so that they can mentor you when you're ready to jump. You know, most people jump and start their own company, whether it be a staffing company or whether it be a trucking company or a flowback company. Most of these companies that they start, start because they didn't like who they worked for before and they think that they could do it better. And that's okay. The others that I see, they just think that they have the greatest new technology that they're getting ready to think of and create. Maybe they got a good friend who can code things and the two of them work on a project together after hours, but they should still be networking. Networking is probably the most important thing right now to truly understand, A, where the capital is so that when they do jump out, they know who to ask and they know who will mentor them through that startup period. You always start with family and friends. It's going to be your cheapest money. And then 
there are in different cities, whether it be Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Dallas, even Kansas City, there are technology hubs that are set up usually with attorneys that and other tech savvy folks who are there to kind of help develop your project and your company and connect you with the capital. And there is a ton of grant money out there for development of technology and development of new processes. You just have to know who to ask and where to get it from. It's a lot of tax incentives that aren't directed specifically to the business owner that's starting up the company, but there's a lot of angel investment tax incentives for you know, high net worth individuals to actually invest into a company in their specific state that will offer them tax credits. I know Kansas has several that are leaning more towards technology and angel investment. But once the company generates money, once the company has got revenue, that really opens them up to obtain, again, alternative financing, whether it be factoring which is a whole nother discussion. I used to do it. I still think that there's a need out there for it. But asset-based lending is where I'm at right now. And that really focuses on those companies that are high growth or some of them that may have just stubbed their toe recently and the bank has asked them to exit. It's really interesting, the dynamic that we're having right now in the economy. It's changing every day. But specifically for those who have a great idea, I say network as much as you can with as many people as you can that will help you support the project that you have in front of you. Thank you for that advice. And I know we could expand on that because there's so much more to talk about. And that's why I'm going to have to get you back on another episode because you always have so much to share. Your knowledge base is wonderful and you articulate it really well. I think those that are questioning where they are right now, they can stop and think, you know, maybe I need a little bit more experience. Maybe I am ready to get back in or go into the energy industry, whatever it might be. But to really give it some thought and really plan things out and listen to both the mind and the heart as well along the way, because once you make that move, it's hard to go back. And I find that a lot of entrepreneurs went through some difficult times that they didn't have to, they could have avoided it had they listened to a few Absolutely. of those, those tips you're talking about, Stacy. So I appreciate this time talking about financials, about your company, about what you're up to. And we're just touching just some of the things that we'd like to talk about. But I hope you'll return, Stacy, and also the listeners return when Stacy's on because he has so much to share with us. And again, thanks to Stacy Huddleston. Thanks for being on the Energy Fellows. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we appreciate you. And again, tune in to upcoming episodes of the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm your host, Mark Stansberry. And remember, the future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.